You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I never knew what a cult film was till we became one. Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. With Big Lebowski, why is it such a cult classic? It's just a damn good film. When it came out, I think it went over most people's heads. I saw Pink Flamingos went up the height of its popularity, and then I'd see it in court when I was charged with obscenity at 10 a.m. I love Spinal Tap. It takes a while for people to really understand what's going on. It doesn't matter what generation, everybody can relate. It has to be the audience finding the film rather than the film finding the audience. Putting razor blades in her hair so she gets into a fight and somebody grabs her hair. Ah! Russ Meyer was not just your average exploitation filmmaker. Each teenage generation, they want to be different than the generations before them. Point Break is one of the greatest films made. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me again is Mr. Rod Lott. Mike, how's it going? Also back in the booth is Mr. Chris Stashu. I have my sunglasses on. My hair is perfectly done. You can call me the Jim Jones of this cult podcast. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at a new series called Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. Directed by Danny Wolf, the title might tip you off that this is a documentary about cult movies from around 1936 to 2004, pretty much exclusively focusing on American films. We will be hearing from the filmmakers as well as actor Edwin Neal later on in this episode. And full disclosure, I've been friends with one of the producers of this documentary, Irv Slifkin, for a lot of years. Just want to get that out of there um, so people can accuse me of not revealing that. So just want to say that. So Chris, I am very curious, what did you think of Time Warp? Well, before I give my opinion, I do want to thank you, Mike, for clearing the air as to whether or not there will be any nepotism on this podcast, unlike so many movie news websites I go to that don't do that. I liked it. I do have some issues. I think you've already essentially put a pin right in one of them about them being all American films. The other thing that I have a, I would say a massive issue with is there's like a panel throughout these. It's a hodgepodge, to say the least, uncomfortable to say even more than that, and frankly unnecessary, I think, at the core. But other than that, it's it's okay. I mean, look, I think anytime you make a definitive anything about anything, you're going to have people say, well, that's not definitive because you missed X, Y, and Z. I liked what they had to say about the movies that they covered. They left out some movies. I'm surprised by the level of people that they got, because there are some rather big names associated with this documentary. But it was, you know, entertaining, almost five-hour romp through American cult films. And, Rod, I have read your review of the first chapter, but I'm still going to ask you, what would you think? My reactions lie with Chris's pretty much. It's very well produced, for the most part, excluding the little slideshow previews of the next installments that come at the end. I didn't know what that was about. I know. I kept wondering, is this just for us watching this version of it, or does everybody see this? They put the slideshow at the end of the third one for the first two, assuming you hadn't already watched them. Yeah, it's like choose your adventure, kind of. 
Um, I am very impressed by some of the huge names they got, which I think kind of made the unknowns really not needed to be there. I'm confused about the structure, or I should say the concept of the thing. Who is this for? I know we're going to talk about that because their intent probably would cause my opinion to differ a little bit, depending on which way they're going. But, you know, I shouldn't be unsure of what it's supposed to be. Uh, If I'm judging by the title alone, I would say it is not the definitive work it claims to be. Uh, These are not for the, you know, the greatest, the greatest cult films of all time. Anytime you have a list, people are going to complain. You left this off. Why'd you put this on? And I do get that, but I think it tries to do a little too much and it doesn't really tell the story I wanted to know, which goes kind of goes back to the, who is this for? The title is focused on Rocky horror. I felt like they didn't even need that pre colon title. Like, okay, we get it. Rocky horror. I think that's the midnight movie of midnight movies. You don't spend even enough time on Rocky horror to warrant putting that before everything else. That is the title. Everyone associates with cult films when you talk about midnight movies and it's a way in it's probably the well not the one that everyone's seen but it's the one everybody knows yeah exactly it top of mind even if you haven't seen it you know about it and i think it's a way in it does kind of work as a dual title like time warp because you know they are looking back obviously but yeah is it is it all inclusive is it no you know does it say it all no but there could, you know, Midnight Madness is already taken. So, what are they supposed to do? I just kept thinking of the Trey Parker and Matt Stone pilot that they did. Um, I think they did two versions of it called Time Warped, where it was like uh, Romeo and Juliet set in uh, Cro Magnon and Neanderthal times. And then my favorite version of the pilot is the story of Moses, which is just absolutely hilarious. Time Warped in color. Okay, now hold on a minute. You spoke with the Lord? Yeah, he said we are to go to Egypt and tell the Pharaoh to release all the Hebrews. Where's the bush? I think there's been a mistake. I said, Lord, why did you pick me? I'm like the worst speaker in the whole land. Exactly. And he said, Aaron the Levite is thy brother. I shall make you a god before Pharaoh, and Aaron will assist in speaking. Assist? But yeah, that's called Time Warped. So every time I look at this title, I just keep thinking of Time Warped, and then it's, it's really made me want to go back and rewatch those pilots. I don't think that we're the audience for this documentary. What do you mean by we? You, me, and Rod. No, no, I know, I know that, but like we, we're we make up a group, right, of people. We are film fans. We're we're film nerds, and I really don't think that film nerds are going to get a whole lot out of this, other than it's 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 comfort food, you know. I mean, I, I yeah. put it on, I watched it, I enjoyed it. I was like, okay, that's cool. There's a couple stories I didn't know. It's nice to see some of the people that are involved in this, the, some of the people that are interviewed. And it's just like, okay, this is cool. It didn't break any new ground. It didn't tell me anything I really had to know. It didn't take me through like a, a history. It didn't start me at one point and drop me off at another point. It's just kind of, it, it really reminds me of things like uh, Not Quite Hollywood, where it's just like, here's a mishmash of all this stuff, and we're going to try to group it by different things, and then here's interviews. At least it wasn't like overly heavy on Adobe After Effects, you know, where it's just like distractingly to the point where it's just like, oh my God, these title cards look fantastic. 
why can't the rest of the movie look this good? I enjoyed it, but like I said, I don't think that this was really made for us film nerds. It was made for American films. Film nerds. Look, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy because there are so many cult films that have made it over to the United States that are considered cult films in the United States that are from foreign countries that didn't even, I mean, no foreign films for the most part made this list. They had to have had at least one film from England. I think Rocky Horror transcends the boundaries of the countries it's the country it's made in. Well, it is set in Texas. My point being, there's nothing other than that, really. And that's weird. It is It is an oversight, and I do think that that's, again, that goes back to the title, The Greatest Cult Films. You know, that's a huge section of the globe that got left out. And I don't know what, what titles you're thinking of that you would include, but yeah, absolutely. Um, there's plenty around the whole planet that could have made it on this list. We could literally play a fun game right now naming all those movies and not overlap for several rounds. Let's put it that way. Growing up, when I grew up, you didn't have things like this. You didn't have shows like this. You were lucky if you caught an episode of the incredibly strange film show or even just that that Tom Bosley hosted film show that they would show on Saturday afternoons, you know, like there was nothing that would give you this kind of thing. So, uh, I mean, my copy of Midnight Movies by Hoberman and um, Rosenbaum is just, it's in tatters, you know, it's falling apart because I leafed through that thing so often and just was like, oh my God, I've never heard of this movie. This looks fantastic. What is this? Oh my goodness. I, I have to try to find this some somehow, some way I need to be able to see this movie. So those are some of the greatest cult films of all time. And just like there's barely any of those films that are represented in this one. But I know, like, the title's very ambitious, but what are you going to do? Are you going to call it, like, some of the greatest cult films of all time? A sampling of cult films? I mean, you have to go big, right? I wouldn't have. I would have said Time Warp, a journey through cult film. Like, you don't have to make the claim that these are the greatest, because I, I kid you not, and this is one of the things that I found amusing, I don't consider Super Troopers a cult film. It is a film that I love. I saw it at the right time, in the right mindset. I love it. as It's a great comedy. I don't consider it a cult film. Not enough to be mentioned along with some of these other films. I'm surprised they didn't clickbait the title with, like, Time Warp. 30 cult films you have to see or something like that because it does appeal to that i, I feel like it appeals to that generation it's or it list wants driven. to yeah list driven it wants to introduce an audience to movies they haven't seen and i feel like is the way they should have gone uh title wise you do bring up an interesting reference mike with midnight movies the book i thought about that a lot because that covered a lot of the same movies not you know apples to apples, but it did cover a lot of the same titles, but also total story from start to finish of like what, what the midnight movie phenomenon was, how it became a thing. And that's what this doesn't do. And that's what I wanted from it. There's a 2005 documentary called midnight movies from the margin to the mainstream that I believe was made for stars or some cable channel that focuses it does tell that story it's not based on the rosenbaum book but it does tell that story of the phenomenon and it 
focuses on six titles, basically. Rocky Horror, Night of Living Dead, uh, Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead, and then two that aren't even mentioned in the documentary here. The Harder They Come and El Topo. El Topo was the one that I just kept thinking, that is like the cult film for me, but... It's too weird, bro. What are you talking about? Such a weird movie? At the same time, like my mind also goes back to a horrendous list that Entertainment Weekly put together years and years and years ago, probably decades ago, where they just threw that net out and cult films meant anything that was popular but didn't make a lot of money at the box office or something. I still can't figure out what they were going for because they had fucking Shawshank Redemption on their list. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Any A movie that shows all weekend, every weekend on TNT cannot be considered a cult film. I put my foot down. I remember that, that article. I'm pulling it up now. <laughs> you got Spinal Tap. I think Spinal Tap might have been on the, the cover of the magazine. Yeah, because it was number one. Spinal Tap, that's great. That's fine. But Shawshank, there were a couple others on there. I was like, no, I'm not buying this. So I'm right there with you, Chris, as far as like Super Troopers. I mean, Napoleon Dynamite felt like it was the crossover film. When I saw that movie the first time, I just kept thinking this was a movie that was made for people like me. But then that it was produced by MTV Films and that it was out there in the mainstream and you've got people wearing Vote for Pedro shirts and talking about tots that would never have watched this movie otherwise. It's just like, okay, this has gone mainstream. This isn't necessarily a movie for me. I do enjoy it, but it's not a cult film. And also the thing about this that does kind of cut to the core of the title alone of the film. And it's something that, I mean, Rod and Mike, the three of us would probably even have similar but varying degrees of answers is what does a cult film mean to you, particularly me or Rod yourself or Mike? What does it mean? Because clearly my definition of a cult film, I would say, varies from the filmmakers of this documentary enough that I would have discounted certain films even showing up on this list to begin with. Hmm. Like what? Super Troopers should not be on the list. Kingpin, I don't think should be on. I mean, these kind of these movies where when I think of them, I don't think of them as like some sort of like underground cult hit. I mean, like Buckaroo Banzai deserves to be on the list. I think Rocky Horror sets the standard. But like, I think, again, it's also kind of transcended the medium so much now. Do you know what I mean? Like, it is a cult hit, but... Yeah, I think a lot of those, especially in the comedy, that if you've watched the third documentary, which it's odd that there are three separate things for this, but the third, number three, whatever you want to call it, part three, volume three, focuses on comedy, and it seems like a lot of what's in there is there because it's quotable. And I don't think quotable equals cult film. And they're also rather contemporary. True. Very contemporary, yeah. I love Kingpin, but it's not a cult movie. No, and I, like I said, I love Super Troopers. It's not a cult movie. Like, and the third part of this documentary is the weakest for me. Because not only do they have comedies, but then they also shoehorn in Ed Wood in the room. And those should have been in the first part. Especially Ed Wood. And especially, I mean, I don't think there's any way you could make this film without addressing the room. 
But again, I also at this point think that The Room is kind of transcended being a cult film. There was a big budget movie made about it. The interview that I did with these guys is very interesting because they did their documentary very much the same way I do the podcast, which is you make a list, you see who you can get from that list, and that helps determine for me what episodes I'm going to do. You know, I will sit there and I will say, Oh, I, I wonder if I could, uh, you know, talk to, I don't know, uh, Dolly Reed. Uh, oh, yeah, I, she agreed to an interview. Oh, well, I could, wonder if I can talk to, uh, you know, Ronnie Z-Man Barstel. Yep. Okay. He's up for this stuff. So it's like, all right. Well, there we go. Now I have a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls episode. For sure, I will be doing this. And that's how I kind of program the podcast a lot of times. But then there's other times where it's like, well, I don't care who the fuck I can get from this Marco Ferrari film. We're going to do Seeds of Man. So it's like half and half these days, but it used to be much more leaning towards who can I get for an interview, and then that determines this. So I think a lot of these choices were... Who can we get? And then that helps shape what movies they're going to talk about, which kind of belies the idea of these are just the greatest cult films of all time, because these are the greatest cult films of all time where we could actually get interviews for a lot of them. They could have literally had people talking about other movies that they felt were cult films, not talking about the movies they were part of. And they kind of did that, but... Like you said, Mike, I think they leaned way too hard on these are the people we could talk to about the movies that they were in. I, I really like the that they included film critics in this. We don't have the fanboy film critics, but actual film critics like, you know, Owen Gleiberman and David Ellestein. Like I, what they have to say is intelligent and it's informative and it's entertaining. But some of these other people that uh, I've never heard of before, there are a couple that I've absolutely never seen or heard of before. And I don't want to like pick on someone, but you know who I'm talking about, Mike, there's this guy in this movie (laughs) that I don't know why he's in it, what he brings to it. He's not involved in any of the projects and he's just annoying to listen to. I know what you're talking about, Rod, and I'm right there with you. Like, let me just say that certain people can wear ascots and other people can't. This series has two people with ascots. Peter Bogdanovich can wear an ascot. You've got one ascot too many in this movie. Exactly. Oh, this is a different person. This th- I wasn't even talking about that guy. Okay, you guys are on a completely different page. <laughs> that guy just kind of like, I was like, whatever. This the, the thing, like you mentioned, Rod, I'm taking this in a different direction. Just because you work for a movie website does not mean you are the credible expert on anything period the end is i mean and i just because you have a movie podcast doesn't mean you're a credible expert on anything you know myself included i would say i'm not an expert on anything but they didn't reach out to me to sit and pontificate for their documentary they get such short shrift five six minutes a piece maybe each film it's just so surface level And that was infuriating to me. Well, infuriating is taking it too far. It was annoying uh, a lot of the time because it reminded me of just like little, instead of telling a story front to back, these are just all these little disconnected DVD featurettes, like an electronic press kit. You know, we'll give you a a few minutes about this, but you're not going to learn that much. 
you mentioned the stars documentary and I know like, I think stars and maybe Bravo and a few other cable channels they would do. And especially like VH one was notorious for like top 50 horror movies of all times. And then it was just a countdown to whatever. And then you'd be like, and, and they weren't to this point, they weren't internet smart at this point. They weren't saying, and you won't believe what's at number seven, you know, <laughs> What this felt like at times was something you've always talked about, Mike, when doing a podcast, which is don't just read the facts off IMDb. Like, don't read the trivia page for IMDb. That's what this felt like at times. I would agree with that. But there are also some stories that I thought were great that don't fall into that realm. But they're few and far between. Yeah, the the Rocky Horror anecdote from Ray Murray of the Philadelphia Cinema or Theater where it showed saying that they had a rat infestation because since they didn't clean up the toast and rice. I mean, that's a great story. That is a great story. And I love Mary Warnoff talking about um, Sylvester Stallone and how he was writing this movie, and she just felt so bad for him because she knew, knew it would never go any place. When he was living in a closet. I mean, I was glad that they had Danny Perry on here because oh, yeah. he is the other voice for me of cult movies. I mean, his cult movie series... Oh my God, that was another one where I was just like it, devouring, especially that first volume. It's just like, what is this movie? I need to see this. What is this? I think they talked about, he talked about Jubilee in there. And I'm just like, what is this? I need to see this movie. You know, and just so many of those. And then even, even what some people might consider mainstream movies, but he's like, no, this is actually a cult movie and this is why. Those justifications uh, are kind of what I was missing sometimes, where I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, or like even talking about like how cult movies have changed through the years because of the medium. You know, Chris, you were talking about Super Troopers, and it's like, well, that was clearly in the DVD era. That was not a, you know, this movie came out and failed and made it big on VHS, kind of like a, a Buckaroo Banzai kind of thing. Or this movie came out and failed, but then they started showing it at midnight, and then it became a hit, like Rocky Horror. So you've got all of these different eras in here, but they never really talk about it. I mean, they didn't even mention a single Cronenberg film. My head ex- – I mean, look, Videodrome is one of my favorite movies. My head exploding, no pun intended, for scanners, but – I'm shocked. There are some things about this documentary that if this is a kind of gateway drug to cult movies, you're setting people up for failure by by leaving out certain – I mean, I certain genres. I mean, I felt like they almost completely overlooked horror and action, which is fine, but you're leaving some really big things out. Yeah, horror, at least they did devote, what, half – of the second one to it action. I think you're right. Point break is not one I would include. I didn't realize that was a cult film. <laughs> I wasn't under the impression a movie with Keanu Reeves and Patrick Swayze was a cult film that got remade less than five years ago. I did not either. That was news to me. I do want to ask Mike, you brought this up the round table. Since you talked to the filmmakers, do you have any insight into what that was about because this thing is presumably and credited as being hosted by Joe Dante and he does not operate as a host. In fact, he talks less than John Waters does who he's sitting across the room from. And then you have Ileana Douglas and Kevin Pollack between them. I don't know why they bring nothing to this. 
And I just don't understand that that roundtable format because they're not really in it much. They're in it at the beginning and a little at the end and maybe once or twice in between, but they don't host it. There's no hosting going on here. They got Waters because he would not talk about pink flamingos or female trouble or anything else without like he didn't want to just be interviewed and talk about those movies, which is surprising because John Waters shows up in 60% of the film documentaries that are made today. That, mm-hmm. that number is not uh, valid, but uh, that's what I feel like. Dante's a great raconteur. Waters is a great raconteur. I really like Ileana Douglas. Kevin Pollack, I never have gotten that guy. And then he doesn't, it feels like he doesn't even know why he's there. I mean, does he even talk Barely. during the whole thing? Barely. I mean, does Kevin Pollack matter anymore when he's not doing a Christopher Walken impersonation? I mean, he even almost does it at times. I'm pretty sure, you know, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Kevin Pollack and Christopher Walken, I think Kevin Pollack has lost who he is and he's now just Christopher Walken. I mean, I could hear him doing the Christopher Walken voice unintentionally. That's not why he's there. And like you said, Mike, I don't even know why he's there. It's just strange. I know he's got a podcast that I haven't listened to. I I don't dislike the guy, but what are you bringing to this? And then Joe Dante just felt so uncomfortable. Like his stuff felt really scripted uh, rather than just off the cuff. And he felt like he was the... Uh, the person who kept trying to get them back on track. And, but it was like, get rid of everybody else and just have Dante and Waters and have them talk and maybe have them, you know, just be like, oh, well, what do you think of Cult Filmos? Well, here's what I think it is. And da 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 da. And go back and forth and like actually host this thing. But instead, it was just like, what are we doing, folks? This is really kind of strange. Well, I didn't know why Danny Perry wasn't the one hosting it to begin with. Yeah, and he's barely used. And that's that's a shame. Yeah, there's no historical context to any of this stuff. There are cult movies that have very uncomfortable moments in them from a 2020 perspective, Mm -hmm. but we don't really address that. We don't even get a sense that the panel likes cult movies. I mean, other than the fact that John Waters has made them, and maybe some of the Ileana Douglas and Kevin Pollack have been in them... I didn't get the sense that they loved cult film and that's why they're here. It felt like, where's the craft services table? Can I get some free food in my paycheck, please? What were those outtakes like? Like, what did they do when they weren't cutting away to other stuff? Check their phones. I mean, obviously, they're not showing the other footage while they're sitting there or anything. But it's just like, did they have more to do? And it just ended up on the cutting room floor? To narrow it down, what's the one movie that we haven't mentioned already you think should be should be covered god i would think something like thundercrack i'm going back to like what were the underground films that eventually you know that that never became mainstream maybe they informed some mainstream films maybe they just were informed by hollywood films and tried to do their own thing sticking to an american palette rather than like Tetsuo the Iron Man or something, you know, there are so many, but what's in the Amos Vogel book, you know, like what are in there that should be in this thing? How about replacing Super Troopers with another comedy that came out in the 90s that Mike and I have been champions for for as long as I've known Mike? It was one of the first things you and I ever talked about when we became friends. Why didn't they mention Freaked? Yes. I mean, it should be there. It, there's not even a question. 
for a film like Freaked because it is a cult film because it's so underknown by so many people. Don't put Super Troopers. Everybody knows Super Troopers. Everybody knows Cat Game. Even my parents know that. I thought Cat Game was a movie, and I was like, what is I this? Too. <laughs> well, okay. Sorry, sorry. Cat Game from Super Troopers. But for if, oh, cause I was, can I, cause I figured one of us is going to ask the question. But for me, it's either Videodrome or Freaked. I don't know why either of those aren't on this list. Cause I guarantee you, Alex Winter would have gladly sat down and talked to them about Freaked. The two I kept thinking of, and uh, to a lesser degree, Basket Case was one. Can't believe it's not on here as heavy metal, because that was one of the absolute midnight movie phenomenons. You know, was unavailable for a long time on home video for decades, and uh, that had that had quite a quite a run theatrically on the midnight movie circuit. I don't know why it's not here. What about shock treatment? I mean, they mentioned Rocky Horror, and they didn't even mention shock treatment. Some people have a violent reaction to shock treatment. I love shock treatment. Oh, wait, no, not shock treatment. Sorry, I'm thinking of shock corridor. <laughs> but yeah, I'm with you. Shock treatment should be on here, even though people don't, you know, people who are expecting the same thing don't like it. I personally don't care for it, but I do think it should be here. I kind of misspoke before when I said that they went back to 1936. Actually, I think went back to 1932 because they do talk about freaks just a little bit. Between that and Reefer Madness, we have the 1930s covered. And then I think we skip to the 1970s. Maybe the, no, no, there's some 60s films in there as well, but I also like the idea that apparently no other black exploitation films were made other than ones that Pam Greer was in. And also, also that black exploitation is an offensive term apparently now. I love that quote from Owen Gleiberman. I wrote it down. A horrible word if you think about it. Hey, Owen Gleiberman, you worked for Entertainment Weekly, a horrible magazine. Think of that. You mentioned that that they get film critics in this documentary. I'm sorry, but film critics? I mean, I don't know what we consider podcasters, but... I guarantee you a lot of the film critics that they reached out to said, I don't want to be on this for a number of reasons. And then they get Owen Gleiberman. You know, he shit on those movies when they came out. And now he's, you know, every, like he said, even about other critics, they all turn tail and turn around. And all of a sudden, everybody's singing the praises of Showgirls. Get out of here. When Showgirls came out, it was not liked. It has taken a lot of time for that to, you know, there there were small pockets of people that enjoyed it, and then it has grown over the years. Definitely. The underrepresentation of things I consider cult films, like black exploitation, is bizarre. This is a completely underrepresented. I mean, sure, Pam Greer movies are great, but you show Truck Turner and you don't mention it. You don't talk about Shaft. You don't, t- I mean, come on. There was almost a joke there. Don't talk about Shaft. We have a marijuana expert in Dinah Leffert, I think her name is. Who was also apparently in class with Tommy Wiseau. Oh, really? She talks about it in the, the room part. She's like, he was there. She was talking like she had been there, so I assumed the way she was talking. She also happened to be a marijuana expert and whatever the other thing was, but also shared a room with crazy man Tommy Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau expert. No, that's Greg Sestero. Might be the only Tommy Wiseau expert. Or or as I like to put Greg Sestero, Tommy Wiseau hanger-on. Because if anyone has read The Disaster Artist, I didn't come away from that book thinking he liked Tommy Wiseau very much. But man, he's made a ton of money off of him, so... 
it's entertaining. I'll give it that. The all three of these are entertaining. I do think that the second one's not as good as the first one. The third one's not as good as the second one. That could just be me being tired of the format as it goes along. It's okay. I you know I know we've been bagging on them a lot here, but it it could have been a lot worse, and I've seen a lot worse, but I've also seen it done better, and I really wanted it to be better. Like you said, Rod, they're coming from a place of love. I don't think anybody can argue that, right? I mean, they love these movies. The people who are talking varying degrees of experts and or affection for these movies, but there are so many things that are just kind of don't feel like a failure. They just feel like a minor misstep, but enough minor missteps add up and it's a stumble. And I think that there are parts of this that are good, but I think a lot of this is kind of a stumble in the right direction, if that makes sense. I'd agree with that. That sounds like the pull quote. A stumble in the right direction. I'll like it 10 years from now, though, okay? I swear. (laughs) All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play an interview with director Danny Wolf, producer Paul Fishbein, and actor Ed Neal. And we'll be right back with that after these brief messages. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series Tales from the Crypt. Here's what a rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. (laughs) Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks is a lie ball Because it's fun it on out. She was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There are some butts. Yep, killings. Yep, butt. Yep, killings. Butt. Yep, killings. If it's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and a token dude talking horror. And Danny, I'm very curious, how did you guys first meet and how did you decide to come up with this project? Yeah, this has been a a dream project of mine my entire life, being a cult film fanatic and always wanting to make films and TV shows and documentaries. And it's a project that was sort of in the back of my mind as I was, my career was progressing. And I uh, talked to a uh, one of the investors in my company and he thought it was a great idea. And he goes, well, why wait? Let's just put the money up now. So I had my angel investor and we were ready to go. And I needed a director. I needed a like-minded person. 
I had done a television show called Sex with Sonny Megatron on Showtime with another, produ- with another producer named Jay Blumenfield. I knew he knew a lot of local producers and directors, and I called him up. I told him about the project, and he said, oh, I have the perfect person for you. So I called Danny and said, Jay gave me your number, and Danny called me back while he was on his way to the New Beverly Cinema, which is the big repertory cinema that Quentin Tarantino owns. What, do you remember what you were going to see that night, Dan? I think it was a snake exploitation triple feature. He goes, yeah, I'm heading to the uh, New Beverly now. And it was almost like he was made in an oven for us. You know, he was like the perfect film buff, cult fanatic, wacky, perfect sensibility experienced TV producer and director and uh, we hit it off right away and he, he understood the project immediately and Irv Slifkin who you know Mike is another writer friend of ours, author, college professor, somebody I grew up with in, as a movie buff and he was a producer and just we all hit it off immediately. Paul I do have to ask you about your filmography because it looks like for a lot a lot a lot a lot of years you're Big gig was the AVN award show. Yes, that is me. I am. The, How was that? It depends on your point of view. It was, you know, <laughs> the, the story of AVN coincides with Movies Unlimited, the video store that Irv and I worked at in the early 80s, in that we were graduating from Temple University. We were film fanatics. We really wanted to come to Hollywood and make movies. We were journalism students. We were in Movies Unlimited, and people were getting VCRs for the first time. Now, your audience may not even know what a VCR is, depending on how young they are. But VCRs, video cassettes were coming into play. People were getting them for the first time. They were coming up to the counter at the store, and they were always asking for an adult movie as their first rental. And Irv and I having saying, well, we're college graduates and we're journalism students and, and we're working in retail, came up with the idea to do a movie magazine about the new burgeoning adult video business. And so we called it Adult Video News. And from there, it turned into a big trade publication and trade show in Las Vegas. And then we started the AVN Awards, which were called by Entertainment Weekly the Oscars of Adult. And so we started doing the AVN Awards. We sold it to first Playboy TV, then to Showtime. And even 10 years, it's 10 and a half years since I sold my company, there's still Showtime is still showing the AVN Awards every spring. And that's what it was. And so we got to do our Hollywood thing, only we took about a 30-year detour. You said that this has been cooking for you for a long time. And what were your goals in actually wanting to put this together? Like a lot of people, I like lists. And I was a big fan. You'll probably remember the American Film Institute used to do those specials on CBS. 100 years, 100 movies, the greatest stars the greatest actors and actresses, and they used to do their own kind of clip shows. And uh, one of the projects I did coming out of selling AVN for Showtime was a documentary on the greatest adult movies of all time. And it was in the spirit of the American Film Institute, only it was adult movies. And it turned really into a history of the adult film business through the lens of the 30 best adult movies of all time. And it was super successful in Showtime. Netflix bought it after Showtime. It was a very big hit for me. And always being just a film buff, I really wanted to turn my attention to something 
less adult and more mainstream and having being fans of these movies that are in, in our cult documentary. It was just something that I wanted to do. I had the experience. I had some success with doing the kind of list clip documentary shows. And so uh, it was just a natural. And, and I'll add when we started and it was uh, Paul and I and Irv and our supervising producer, Christine, we literally took a giant wall in our office and came up with, I don't know, Paul, like 200 qualifying cult films that we all were interested in covering, but obviously that's too many. So we started breaking them into like the A movie, the ones you have to have, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Clockwork Orange, Eraserhead, and others. And remember, Paul, then we had like our B wall, our C wall, and our D wall. Right. Some of the D wall made it in because we were able to, to find the people who were in them and they were willing to talk. So I would say something like <laughs> liquids, liquid, liquid sky was on sort of the, was on the fence. And then we got a hold of Slava, the director, and we said, well, we have to do liquid sky. So, you know, sometimes it was driven by after you get past the essentials, the Rocky Horror Picture shows and, and, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacres, then you have to sort of figure out, okay, who can we get? Who's going to talk? Who's going to make it interesting? And, and that's sort of how you put it together. But I mean, what made it really, I mean, you take a movie to our credit, like a Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Now, this movie's 50 years old right now. And we got, you know, four of the five stars you know, that are still alive to all come on camera and talk about it, which is sort of a rarity because they're not that easy to find. You know, that was a movie we didn't, you know, was a kind of a no brainer. We think that's a great cult film, but then to say, wow, we're going to interview the four, you know, except for Cynthia Myers who passed away, we got the other four stars. If you're able to get a lot of the cast or some of the people like Ed for Chainsaw to talk about it, you know, then it's in. And how many times have you been interviewed about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Well, it comes and goes. We call it, the film that won't die. Because, I mean, you know, there are people who are coming up in their 20s, early 20s, who are watching it for the first time. So they immediately have the idea, oh, wow, they've got like this podcast. I've got to talk to this dude, man. So they, they always imagine themselves to be the first one that it has ever interviewed us. But we, we've probably done hundreds over the years, and, and we, we work like that dickens to come up with new life, uh, to new things that we've almost forgotten. Little side note, um, my daughter, who's going to turn 14 next month, uh, I just showed her Chainsaw for the first time, and she was scared out of her skin, and she loved it, and she was just scared out of her skin, so oh, there's, a, there's a new fan, a 14-year-old girl, you know, it was her, and it was fun well, to show her, so. When we do the shows, like, we're, you know, we tour, we've toured, this cockamamie movie has taken me all over the world. Just in the past six months, we've done Germany, uh, um, Canada, Oklahoma City. It was fun. It was great people in Oklahoma. And we did uh, Arkansas and, and, and uh, Nashville and all kinds of fun places. But what happens is, like, like he said, every year there's a completely new audience for the film. And, of course, it, it's made film history because it's one of the only films that's ever been made since film began in 1898. That's never been out of distribution since the day it was first released. It's in, re it's in release right now. It shows at director Fortnite. It shows at Midnight Movies. It shows at, uh, it shows at uh, film festivals. It shows at uh, sorority parties. I was in Vegas one time, and you know, you know that story. That one of my favorite stories is the guy turned to me and said, "What do you do?" He said, oh, "I make cockamamie movies." He goes, "Oh, what did you, what did you win?" I said, what was in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? He goes, oh, well, Booby, I love that movie. 
I got an old theater in Roanoke, and uh, every time we can't make the rent, we uh, rent that movie show it at the midnight. The kids come, we make the rent. Thanks a lot, kiddo. But Ed, aren't you amazed also the books that keep coming out? I mean, remember I was at Amoeba a couple months ago. Hey, look, I took a picture of a cover, and you're like, yep, yet another new book on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No, it's, it's kind of like the JFK assassination at this point. I know what really happened. No, you don't. <laughs> you were not yeah. there. You weren't even born yet. Shut the hell up. <laughs> but they get all kinds of things wacky. They, you know, like, like, they get the story backwards and sideways and upside down, just like JFK. So I love the idea of you guys having this wall of movies. Was it then a matter of who can we get to talk about these things? Was that the next step? First step was just like, like Danny had described. You know, if you're going to do this project, you're going to say, okay, these are the 10, say, num- films that if they're left out of this documentary, we're going to take a lot of crap. So we must do these 10. <laughs> so, you know, a, a good example of is Harold and Maude. So Harold and Maude, which is an essential cult film, it's, it's, it was the first film I ever saw in a repertory cinema when I was uh, 16 years old. My, my high school journalism teacher told me about it, and it was a double feature at the TLA Cinema in Philadelphia called uh, – it was uh, King of Hearts and Harold and Maude. So that had to be in, in our documentary. Christine Augustin, our, our supervising producer, got a hold of Bud Court on the phone, and Bud wouldn't do it. He was offended that we called Harold and Maude a cult film. He said it's simply a classic film. And yes, and, 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 and Bud Court was, did not want it referred to as a cult film and wouldn't Whoa. do the interview. But we, but we still had to have Harold and Maude. You know, there's no way you can leave that out. So that's sort of the first criteria. But after you get those first 10, then you're sort of saying, well, we have 200 to choose from. We can only pick 40 or 50. So we have to have some criteria. So in a lot of cases, it was if we could get some really interesting people to talk about it, then it would be in. And there were a few that we were in. They were in the documentary series. And we had shot interviews, but they just sort of, it just didn't make the cut because we didn't have the right people. Uh, so from dusk till dawn. And they were sober. Well, yeah, well, sober's okay. Uh, it was from dusk till dawn. We couldn't get Robert Rodriguez on the phone. We couldn't get uh, Tarantino and we couldn't get George Clooney. So we just sort of said, well, this is kind of lame. We'll hold it aside. If we ever do more volumes, we'll get one of those guys and we'll go back to it. So, you know, you just sort of have to pick and choose. And as, you, as you've seen, Mike, we have a lot of star power. We have a lot of big stars, big names, Oscar-winning actors, great directors. We have the final interviews of, unfortunately, the final interview of Toby Hooper. We have the final interview of, of Stuart Gordon, the director of Reanimator. We have oh, Sid, wow. Sid Haig's final interview for Devil's Rejects. So... And we just have some big, so many big stars that it's got to be star studded so that people, you know, will pay attention. I mean, if you string these three together, it's five and a half hours. Obviously, we suggest you watch each one individually. I did find it interesting, too, that not only do you have people talking about the movies that they were in, but then cross-talking and talking about some of the other cult movies, too. I mean, that was a very clever thing to be able to pull in, you know, say, Dietrich Bader and have him speak about another movie other than Office Space. The best example of that one is Jeff Goldblum. When Jeff Goldblum arrived on set, with his groomer to do his hair, they went right to the makeup room. He and Danny started to talk about cult films and then never stopped. 
Yeah, I mean, it went all the way down the hallway till we sat him down and put a, a lob on him and interviewed him. And, you know, the 90 minutes or so I was given or allotted to interview him, I think we did almost three hours because he wanted to, A, go through his library of movies to see if any other films he's been in are cult films like The Fly. And then he, you know, they always throw out like, so what other movies are you covering? Like Jeff Bridges said, and you start naming them and then they start reminiscing. And, oh, I remember when I saw that movie when I was a kid, it really, you know, like Amy Heckerling talking about freaks, how it affected her when she was young. So they, they, for the most part, everyone enjoyed thinking about reminiscing or giving why certain movies were their favorite cult films and how it affected their lives. So, no, that was a bonus. That was yeah, once our cinematographer, yeah, once our cinematographer turned on his camera and Jeff continued to talk to you, Danny, you didn't yeah. ask your first question for like a half hour. We just ran. <laughs> it was just Jeff, Jeff Goldblum just, just talking, 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 yeah. uh, which was fantastic. I mean, you could put out a, an entire full length feature of Jeff Goldblum talking and it's fascinating because he's just such yeah. a, he's just so, such an interesting guy. And so you, you sort of get gems like that when he starts to talk about Harold and Maude and he starts to, to sing the Cat Stevens song. And, you know, you, you just, if you let, give people time and they're comfortable. And plus Danny Wolf, who you're talking to is the best interviewer I've ever seen. I mean, I watched him interview 150 people for that. And our new documentary, which is finished, which is coming out in August, he interviewed about another 60 people. And I've never seen a better interviewer because as the director, he knew what we needed and what we wanted. And if they didn't say what we wanted, he kept asking them the question in a different way until we got the sound bites we needed. So, so Jeff Goldblum was a breeze, right? Yeah. Or people like Ed Neal, you know, that are so animated and so fun to talk to and have something interesting to say. And, you know, you're always getting, you know, remember when, and, and the thrill of interviewing Ed, of course, I mean, doing it in front of the, the chainsaw house in Kingsland, Texas was, oh, yeah. was the bonus of all bonuses. And I think people who watch volume two on May night, when it comes out May 19th, they're going to be extremely happy. You know, and, the thing I remember Danny about that and it was, you know, we had shooting outside. It was the first weekend of our entire shoot. And I know we were having, we had a substitute, cameraman and a new and a new audio person from down in texas and we had so much trouble with the sound and with the with the wind and everything there was a, a leaf blower going and and poor ed was just, <laughs> he is so perfectly focused that nothing faced him he literally would just pick up repeat the sound bite and move on and never miss a beat and we were struggling with that but it really cut together well it really cut together well but but i remember we just had so many technical issues with that interview Teresa, my wife and i went to the uh, premiere in la we were sitting there at the premiere we're eating our popcorn like maniacs and it's going really well and we're like really digging it and all of a sudden rob zombie comes on and i go oh wow we love rob and rob starts talking about Hitchhiker should have won Academy Award. Yeah, he said, I don't know who won that year, but whoever, he should have won Best Supporting Actor. He said, Ed Neal should have won, yeah. Ed Neal yeah. should have won Best Supporting Actor. Teresa, my wife, leans over and, and does a sotto voce voice, which goes all over the theater and goes, how big a check did you send him? But but I gotta say, as Paul and I are such big fans of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we that morning we were in Dallas interviewing Malcolm McDowell and Tom Savini. Uh, they were at a con and then did about, I don't know, Paul, it was like a three, four hour drive from Dallas to Kingsland. And I remember we were, and there was some dirt, right? It was a, an interesting drive, but we 
and then it was nighttime. And the closer we got to like seeing the house, I mean, I've got the chills. I can't even describe the feeling <laughs> when I first made my eyes on the house, which is now a restaurant and a bar. It's been turned into this restaurant and bar. It's a very surreal feeling if you're such a fan of a movie and then all of a sudden in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, there is the house from the movie like in front of you. And to the credit of the, the, the restaurant, you know, they embrace the movie. As Ed can tell you, there's the posters and photos and T-shirts. They, it, it's nice that the people who own the house and turned it in this restaurant embrace, you know, they encourage tourists and fans of the movie to come visit it. And, it, and they should. Well, the kicker is the food is really good. Yeah. I mean, you'd imagine the food wouldn't be the, the food. It's excellent. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's, it's really that, cool. it's that, those old leftover meats from 1973. <laughs> that restaurant, if anybody's wondering, in Kingsland, Texas, is the Grand Central Cafe. That's the name of the restaurant that was the, the house from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So definitely worth visiting if you're a oh, fan of the film. And you know what? Since we're getting to plug our own, uh, when the second uh, comes out in May – it's called uh, Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time, horror and sci-fi. Ed takes us on a tour inside the house, and we show you side by side what the house looks like today compared to the scenes from the actual movie. So that's sort of a little bonus that's in the documentary that I think people will really like. How long did it take for this whole project to come together from that time that you called Danny up to the time when we're now finally seeing this on TV? Tomorrow, May 1st, is the exact third year anniversary of day one of shooting. So, and the first interview we did on May 1st, 2017 was Austin Stoker for assault on precinct 13. So the project took probably a year. It took like maybe a year and a half when we were finally done shooting because it really was supposed to be a single documentary. And then when we probably a couple weeks into shooting, I said to Danny and Christine, I go, you know, this is a much deeper dive. Maybe we should try to do something more. So we were going to do a, try to do like a six part series for, for Netflix or, or Showtime or HBO or somebody. It really became a longer project than it should have. And then it took, I don't know, a year to edit, Danny? It's about all the different yeah, I mean, versions. We well, tried different versions. We tried one hours. We tried, we, we ended up with a long two-parter. And then our distributor said, you know, it's just too much to take in. Let's release it in three parts. And it kind of worked out perfectly as a three-parter. I think our first cut was like nine hours. Yeah, like, that's true. We, we were Danny going tells the editor cuts trying Because Danny says to the editor, don't leave anything out. And so, you know, Danny goes through the transcripts and he picks everything and he goes, well, just don't leave anything out. The editor's like, I don't have enough. I don't have enough space. I don't have enough. I need like a 16 gig drive just to dump all this stuff. for it. <laughs> and so I know we went through cuts that were unbelievably long. And and it, and and just Danny is his vision of the project was I'd rather have too much and cut down. Then, then try to remember what we might have left out. So he didn't really give our editor a chance to do his his version, his cut. Uh, it was really sort of like a team project, just winnowing it down and getting these things to reasonable lengths so that they play well. Which is hard to do because we did cut this good stuff. We had to lose because at some point you got to go that you know you got to say that's it. You got to basically say we're done. Yeah. So I think the five and a half hours of the three parts, I think we're at is, is pretty tight for a three part, you know, five and a half hour docuseries. I think it's still, it moves fast and it's tight. 
When did the idea of the Council of uh, Cult Experts, Kevin Pollack, John Waters, Ileana Douglas, and Joe Dante, when did that come up? We were talking about whether or not to have a host, whether it should be hosted, because the the, the, the two documentaries I did for Showtime, uh, one was called X-Rated, The Greatest Adult Films of All Time, and then it was a follow-up, The Greatest Adult Stars of All Time. They were both hosted. It's not a traditional documentary, you know, like you would normally see, you know, like a Alex Gibney kind of documentary. It's it's really sort of a vignette clip show. So I didn't like we talked about hosts and we had we had ideas for hosts. But I think, Danny, it was when we went to that we went to a, a studio to shoot and we kind of looked at the studio and then we said, I think we kind of all came up with this idea of, well, maybe we'll have like a round table and we'll shoot it in a studio like this because it was a really stark black curtain, white floor studio. And it kind of looked cool. And and you you can see that it's sort of shot very raw where you can see that it's a studio that's not dressed up. And and we kind of like that look. So it kind of just fell into place that we would have like a round table. And then it was just, it was just a matter of, well, we, we just can't have any random people on this round table, but we don't want to have critics because we have film critics and historians throughout. So we want to get some sort of personalities, but they have to be film buffs. So we want them to love film and be able to talk about film, but be personalities that people recognize, but we don't want them to be critics. So when we came upon Joe Dante and he sort of was the one we locked in first, then it was just a matter of, of finding, you know, the right people. I mean, Ileana and, and Kevin Pollack were pretty easy because they both were doing podcasts and were talking about movies. The tough one was John Waters because we really wanted John Waters to just talk about pink flamingos and female trouble. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get him on the phone, but his assistant said he's just tired of talking about them. We cannot do a documentary series about cult movies without John Waters. I don't know. I started to look at criteria and DVDs to see if we could license an interview. I was so distraught. And Danny said, why don't we just put John Waters on the panel with Joe Dante? He'll be great. He loves movies. Let's ask him to do that. And we'll just get him to talk about Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble in the normal context of what they're doing. And and so that was Danny's idea, and it worked great, and John was fantastic. And he's everything you think he is and better, you know? He's just a, a breeze. Those guys loved it. And Kevin Pollack, who didn't talk much at the beginning, you'll see he, he talks more in parts two and three. About two-thirds through the, through the day, he said, oh, let's, let's come back and do this again every year. I mean, they had so much fun. And Ileana said, Ileana said, I can't believe I'm getting paid to just talk about movies. So you, you kind of get their joy in their, in their discussion. And obviously you only see on screen, you know, maybe 12, 15 minutes of an entire nine hour day's worth of shooting. So obviously yeah. a lot of great stuff is, is left out. So Ed, they mentioned that, you know, Bud Court had a, a, a problem with his movie being called a cult film. Do you ever have a problem with Texas Chainsaw being called a cult film? No, and i got to talk to Bud. Because you, do you know the story of, of they finished the film at the studio, right? Okay. They bring the, the you know the, one of the heads of the studio in, and he's going to decide how much he's going to give the advertising budget. The guy turns to the, all the guys with the clipboards and goes, I hate this. I hate every moment of this. This is horrible. I'm giving it a buck eighty. Now, if you look at the original, I'm a film poster buff, 
and I collect and, 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 and for many years. And if you look at the original poster for Heroin Mod, it's Duotone, two color. Nobody has a, a, a Duotone poster for a first release. Duotone posters are reserved for re-release posters because they don't want to spend money on them. And it came out with a Duotone poster. It looked like a re-release poster. And the only thing that saved that movie was called movie word of mouth. You could tell, but I said so. Oh, I was just wondering if, if we had time for a quick story about the first moment that I knew the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a cult movie. Oh, please, yes. It was one of the first shows we ever did. And we were doing a show in Nashville, Tennessee. We were all excited because they're paying us to go to Nashville. Maybe there's something to this film, but I don't know. So we were just starting out to do these these the, the, the uh, shows where we go and meet and greet. And uh, the guy that was booking us, <laughs> I told him, you, you, you got to do the beauty and the beast routine. You, you're going to have a bunch of us crazy, cockamamie, psychopathic people at tables. You got to have somebody pretty to look at, too. And he goes, oh, okay, that's a great idea. So he calls the booker in L.A. and he goes, oh, and do you also handle Marilyn? And they said, oh, of course I do. I mean, she's 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 huge. She's big. He goes, OK, well, then I'll have Ed and I'll have Marilyn. Uh, Marilyn Burns. And, and, and mm-hmm. so, so we get to the show and in strides Marilyn Chambers. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Marilyn Chambers, because the guy never said Burns. And I'm sitting there right beside, I'm sitting there right beside Marilyn Chambers. We had a grand weekend and I had a big line. She had a big line and we're telling bullshit stories the entire weekend. And and, and I knew right then, I said, if I'm going to get booked with Marilyn Chambers, I'm in. It's taking me places I never dreamed I'd get to go because I couldn't afford to go there. You know, like I'm in Germany with John Waters and we're sitting at the bar bullshitting, you know, well, you know, I'd really like to make a film with you. I said, well, I'd really like to make a film. I get, you know, I've traveled all over the world with Malcolm McDowell, and my brother Sid and I spanned the globe. And uh, I've only cried several times in my life. The first time was when Ole Yeller died, and the most recent time was when Sid went, because Sid was the grandest. Sid used to turn and they say, oh, Sid, I heard you, you've got a new script coming in. He goes, how do you decide what you're going to do? The interviewer is going, how do you decide if you're going to do the film or not? And Sid said, well, uh, I look through the script, and if I can determine that it's going to be a cult classic, then I'll do it. That's great. <laughs> that was his criteria. But no, I, I, it's one of the proudest things of my life is to be associated with this grand group of people that they have in these three-part series. And I just I just think the guys did such a good job on it. And that's not because I'm in it. That's because I've seen a lot of this stuff come and go. And uh, I'm telling you, some of it, it's grand. <laughs> You're the part of the reason it's so interesting because a lot of these movies get short shrift over the years. I mean, they're just sort of written off as a as a as a cult film, and oh yeah, it's a cult film, blah blah blah. But you don't really see anybody go deep, and so we tried as much as we could within a reasonable amount of time to go a little deeper and find out a little more about these films than just the usual sound bites. And while you gave us the usual sound bites, you also gave us. A half a dozen unbelievable stories that we had never heard before that really <laughs> some of them sort of resonated and really gave it and really gave it some uh, some heft and and I thought that you know it, it, I think it was just a matter of, of having the time 
uh, to do it. And to, and I guess because we're such fans, we weren't going to let any stone, you know, un, be unturned. So when this is over, what happens next? Do you then have to shop it around or are there already buyers out there? And where can people actually get to see this? Right now, it is available on anywhere you rent movies. So if you rent your movies from Amazon or Apple TV or iTunes, or you rent it from Fandango now or any of those places, it, the first, the first of the three volumes is available also on your cable system, but you have to type in the title. So it's time warp, the greatest cult films of all time. And volume one is called midnight madness because it's, Buried under, it's buried under Trolls World Tour, and it's buried <laughs> under, it's buried under. Um, what was the other movie that came out that was in theaters or, or, or skipping the theaters? Um, there's another big one, I think, Invisible Man, and all these movies that, that were supposed to be theatrical. So it's kind of buried under all those. So you have to know the title to go find it, which is kind of bummer. But after all three come out on demand. Um, our distributor, Quiver Distribution, says they feel like it's going to be a strong streaming candidate for, if not one of the big streamers, maybe some of the free advertising-based streamers. So it will definitely be available to stream, not not probably not before the end of the year, but uh, but it is available through your normal, you know, transactional digital rental places. Is there talk about doing a physical media release and having bonus features and all those kind of things as well? Yes, we have been discussing a Blu-ray box set, and we think that that audience of 100 people that still buy Blu-rays would love it, because there's a ton of bonus material. The question will be, is it worth it? I mean, are enough people buying Blu-rays? Because you see some beautiful box sets out there of, of movies that are fantastic and collectible, but they just don't sell much anymore. So there has been discussion. Uh, our distributor originally said yes, uh, they wanted to do it. And, and I guess it's still to be discussed. I guess if they make enough money off the uh, transactional release, they'll want to do it. So we're up in the air about that. I want to do the Midnight Movie World Tour. And show it starting at midnight, un- uncut, till 5.30 a.m. How's that? Absolutely. You mentioned seeing it theatrically. Where, did you have a premiere someplace? We did one in Philadelphia when it was still a two-parter and not a three-parter. So... People sat for five and a half hours with one intermission. Uh, it was kind of a, it was a movie marathon, and it was the same still, thing in L.A. Same thing. Oh, you're right. In LA, it was, oh. in L.A. It was still same two thing. parts. So right. I think uh, Ed, you were one of the marathoners. I think that lasted or sat through the five and a half hours. I'd had excellent training years ago. They talked Stephen King and I into going down to this grand old theater. The deal was. You had to sit through like six or seven movies in a row, and then whoever made it, the trophy would be presented to them by Stephen King and I. Well, <laughs> these two bikers come in, <laughs> took a jar of binnies, swilled them down with some Jim Beam, and they didn't go to the bathroom or blink for six and a half hours, so they obviously won. <laughs> Stephen King laughed his butt off. He said, that's actually very clever. The screenings went really well. They were very, they were, you know, it's fun to see your work on a big screen, no matter what anybody says. There's a thrill in that. I mean, Ed, of course, being an actor and seeing himself on the big screen many times, it kind of makes it real in some way, at least for me when I saw it. You know, you see it in the edit bay on a small screen for so many months and for so many hours. 
that when you finally can sit and like relax and the lights are out, you can, I kind of enjoyed it for the first time. It almost felt new when you're just sort of in that environment of seeing it on a big screen. It's so communal when you get to sit in a theater, you know, like, yeah. Like you- Danny, who were some of your favorite people to interview? I mean, Ed, of course, because just, you know, Ed's a great guy in the Chainsaw, Chainsaw Massacre is one of the greatest movies ever made. But I'm one of those guys I don't really always like, you know, I mean, Jeff Bridges is great and Rob Reiner and John Turturro. I mean, they're big stars and we're very cool. Um, but, you know, it's like John Lazar from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, just because you don't see him do interviews and you don't know much of his story. So getting to kind of sit face to face firsthand and kind of ask anything you want and have them ask, you know, answer to your face. I mean, John Lazar was pretty cool. David Patrick Kelly from The Warriors is another actor that doesn't do a ton of interviews. So, and being such a fan of The Warriors, having these questions about some of his iconic scenes, like, wow, he's actually going to be able to answer them. Gina Gershon was another one. You know, I love Showgirls. It's one of my favorite movies. And she doesn't do a whole lot of interviews and talk does or talks about the movie a lot. So when we went to New York just to sit down and, you know, talk all things showgirls with Gina Gershon, you know, to hear it right from the source, you know, who was there. And there's so much around that movie between Joe Esterhaus and the Elizabeth Berkeley story. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, fables and rumors and things to talk about. She was very cool. Cause she was very open about everything. And just being a fan of showgirls, hearing her tell me all these, you know, admitting what was real and what wasn't and the rumors, you know, addressing rumors was really, Gina Gershon was very cool. I was there for all the interviews. And so meeting, obviously, Jeff, I mentioned about Jeff Goldblum, meeting John Cleese uh, from Monty Python, because we included Monty Python and the Holy Grail, was probably the biggest thrill for me because I've been a Monty Python fan since I was a kid. Yeah. So... So that was great. And so I just wanted to give John Cleese a shout out. And everyone was great. I mean, there was nobody I hated. Uh, Gary Busey did threaten to beat me up, but that's nothing big, you know. <laughs> other than that, he threatened everyone, to beat everyone up. It's okay. Yeah. But other than Gary Busey threatened to beat me up, everyone was great. It was great meeting all those people. I mean, did you give him a reason for beating you up? Yes. He just no, likes to Gary beat Busey. people up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's just he lives in Malibu. And it's a small townhouse. It's not one of those big, you know, beachfront homes. But I guess, you know, he likes Malibu. And he, it's small. So the camera is set up and he's kind of sitting with his back to the front door. And there was really no room for, for me if I wanted to hear what was going on. So I went behind the cameraman, which put me on his outside balcony. So I sat on the outside balcony and I was, he had, he, he could see me. He was supposed to be looking at Danny on the other side of the camera. He shouldn't have been looking at me. I was on the right side, and he should have been looking left at Danny. And a text came in, and it was for our next stop, wanting to know what time we would be there. So I didn't want to be rude, so I was texting the person that we were going to be at your place so-and-so time, and he stopped the interview. And he looked at me, and he goes, I can't do this. I'm done. I can't be distracted like that. You're, you're throwing me off my game. And he, he did. Now, Danny has a theory about this. My theory is because I talked to him before we started rolling, and he's a good guy. You know, he's a nice guy, and we, we chatted. I think Gary thinks you want crazy Gary. Like, he's delivering to you what he thinks you want. So any question you ask him, it doesn't matter what the interview question is, 
he goes off in these like Garyisms. Like if you right. say, you know, if he uses the word life, he'll go, you know what life is, buddy? L I F E. Live if forever. Like he breaks words yeah. down and he gives you these like really wacky answers. But I think he thinks that's what you want. It's my theory. Like he's delivering to you what he thinks you're expecting of him. So a lot of like the craziness and you can't cut around it because it's almost as Paul could say, it was almost every answer was the same. Like, oh, just answer the freaking question, man. I, I'm, I'm, what I'm only thing I'm angry about is that our cinematographer, when that happened and Gary got up, he shut the camera. No he didn't keep shooting. Yeah. And, you know, my one rule with all of with any time we're shooting, it's we're not shooting on 35 millimeter film. When you say cut, you keep that camera running. You get some yeah. of your best stuff after yeah. when they think that you're done, they keep talking and you get some of your best stuff. I was like, okay, this is great. We're going to do outtakes and maybe we'll have an outtake with Gary getting mad at me. And he went, Oh no, I shut the camera down. I go, what is wrong with you? Yeah, because you never stop running that camera because you get your best stuff. I'm telling you, I, I bet you there are 25 sound bites in this entire documentary. That were that came from interviews that the uh, person being interviewed thought it was over. I bet there are because I know that we had some great stuff after the after we were supposedly done. And and then there was the time that we got to go to Mary Warnoff's house, and she, her house is an old like abandoned <laughs> ballet studio. It's a very strange home. Now Mary doesn't have a f- computer or a TV. She doesn't have a telephone. She threw her TV out. I think when she said, "What show is it?" Paul got canceled. She got so upset she threw. It was Bill like Street the Fall Blues. Guy or Bill Street Blues. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, you can't do a cult doc without Mary Warnoff, of course. I mean, Rock and Roll High School and Eating Raul and the Death Race 2000. You know, Mary is kind of the queen of cult films. But you remember, Paul, you got locked in her bathroom. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and I couldn't get out. And it was during the interview. And I had to stay. I couldn't make noise. So I stayed in there for like a half hour. Well, it was a cult house. So what can you do, you know? But I was locked. Yes, I was locked in. <laughs> But Mary, Mary is very cool. She's great. Well, you, you saw, Mike, you saw in part three when, during Death Race, right, when she's talking about meeting Sylvester Stallone. It's probably my favorite moment. And also when she talked about the Ramones. Those are maybe my two favorite moments in the entire uh, series. Johnny loved her. He loved death. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, were yeah, friends yeah. for many years. I used to get him Elvis posters. <laughs> he was just, he was a sweetheart. He was one of the sweetest guys ever. He loved her to death. Yeah, she is. She's amazing. The one interview that I was really surprised at was uh, is the gentleman's name Peter Illiff, the writer for Point Break. Yes, yes. I was just so tickled by him. I don't know why, but it was just uh, I had never heard his story and how much Catherine Bigelow had rewritten the the script. Yeah, he was. You know, some. You know, we talked about this, Paul and I, and Irv about. You know, it's great to have the stars of the films and, of course, some of the directors, but it's also cool to have a couple of the writers. And, like, okay. Andrew Lane, who wrote Valley Girl, was a fascinating interview. And, and again, Peter Iliff, you know, Point Break is is a legendary cult film now. I mean, they, as we show, they do live stage productions where fans can, you know, participate. And Peter's just this whole story of, you know, Ridley Scott being involved and him leaving and James Cameron coming – I mean, there's a whole story to just behind the story of this writing this movie. Writers by nature are storytellers. So it seems like some of our best 
people that we had on camera. They were writers. And, and naturally, why not? That's what they do for a living. Larry Karaziski, who wrote Ed Wood with his yeah. partner, Scott Alexander, speaks on film. He's fascinating. Uh, the director and writer, Adam Rifkin, who, who talked about Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, Harold and Maude and other films. He's a terrific guy on camera. And, and I think, you know, if they're writers, Amy Heckerling's a writer, they're really, really good storytellers. So you, if you're having a, what is essentially a talking heads documentary, you want to have writers who can tell good stories. And, and Peter happens to be, you know, a, just a good writer with a, with a great ability to tell a story. Paul, you mentioned that you and Danny are working again together and tell me a little bit more about that and what we can expect out of that one. It is called Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies, and it is now complete, and it's coming out in August, I believe, uh, from Quiver Distribution, and it's a history of nudity in Hollywood films, starting with the silent era, taking you through pre-code and what happened with, 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 with the production code, and all the censorship. And all of the directors that broke the code, such as Russ Meyer and, and David Friedman and Herschel Gordon Lewis. And then it takes you sort of into the formation of the MPAA and how that went about. And then the films that sort of were graded X or broke the MPAA code and went into discussion of what happened in the 60s and the 70s. And it ends up today and it's sandwiched with the discussion of nudity in Hollywood today with the Me Too movement. So it has, it has, it has a political angle. It has a, wow. a, a theatrical, you know, about the theatrical angle. It's a history and it's pretty fascinating. We, we, we have quite a few interesting, uh, people. I don't, we don't want to give everything away, but you know, we got, we talked to Mariel Hemingway and Eric Roberts about Star 80. We talked to Sylvia Miles. Oh, we got, interview. yeah, we had Sylvia Miles last interview. We seem to get a lot of last interviews. <laughs> Watch out, Ed. Yeah, it's okay. Ed, Ed's, gonna, Ed's, gonna, Ed's probably done more interviews. He's done plenty since since then. Um, and, and you know, and, and we have some some really fun people. We talk about like the seminal nude scenes in history. You know, like Amy Heckerling breaks down the Phoebe Cates, the famous nude scene. Uh, we have Shannon Elizabeth breaking down her own scenes from American Pie. But the history is so interesting, and and. You know, you didn't really know that Hollywood was as wild as it was before the production code took over. And then you'd really find out how much censorship was going on in Hollywood. It has, it has kind of a great history in it. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a two hour documentary. It's not a series. And, uh, we're, we're excited about it. And it's, it's definitely done. So, and that was and a one of the things- project. Yeah, and sorry. what was cool Good, also Danny. about that, doing the interviews, is asking these actresses and actors, because we covered both male and, you know, Bruce Davis and Malcolm McDowell, you know, several actors that have done male nudity, even the guy from Borat, Ken Davidian's in it. But just, you know, how did nudity affect their careers? Was it something positive? Was it something negative? Did they think doing a nude scene would affect their careers? Would they be typecast or stereotyped as someone that only does nudity? So we kind of dig deep with some of the the top, you know, the people you see in it, like Diane Franklin from Last American Virgin, uh, for example, or Kristana Loken from Terminator 3, you know, just what nudity meant to their careers and the effect it had. So it's not really just, you know, a documentary showing nudity. It's we go way, way deeper. And we have Mamie Van Doren, so you can't yeah, miss yeah. Mamie Van Toby Hooper was actually very upset. He wanted to have a front nudity shot of me walking towards Maryland, but they in the film camera package for the cameras, they couldn't afford a wide angle lens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, call CinemaScope. 
Hey, is that new, Ed, or is that one of your old greatest hits? <laughs> that joke's older than me. Well, the name of the show is Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. Thank you so much, guys. This was a real pleasure, and I hope we can talk about skin when that's available. We love talking about skin, right, Danny? <laughs> yes. Who doesn't? And now if you can just get Monica Belushi to return my calls, everything will be great. I'm going to hang up and call her for you right now. Blade Runner is the greatest cult film of all time. I would make a phone call and say, how can I hang a girl on a meat hook and get a PG rating? And they said, well, you can't. Low budget movie man. Hey, anybody got a chainsaw? Parker Orange is one of the greatest films of all time. A very edgy drama. Malcolm McDowell really grounds that film. I was thrilled with it. You can't try to do it. It just happens by accident. Today's filmmakers all owe George Romero, especially if Night of the Living Dead, so much cred. Everybody copies him. He's the originator. He's the master. I think it's just a cult of one. I don't have to check with anybody else. Nobody else needs to like it. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time. One thing that we didn't talk about up front, we mentioned that they have a shitload of actors. I mentioned Mary Warnoff, but they got some real pulls for this. Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Bridges. All the Jeffs. I was (laughs) so happy to hear them talk and hear... Bridges and Goldblum. I kind of wish that they were our hosts for this, especially because it feels like Goldblum. I mean, especially hearing the uh, interview with these guys where it was like Goldblum, once he started, he just didn't stop talking about cult movies to the point where Chris, you said, oh, yeah, there's no Cronenberg on here. And I was like, well, of course, they brought him in for the fly. And I was like, oh, wait, no, he was in Buckaroo Banzai for a hot second. I forgot about that. And I I was just like, why? (laughs) It should have just been Jeff Goldblum talking about his career for the entire time. I would have been so happy. I mean, I do like that they mentioned that Jeff Goldblum is in the fly multiple times underneath his name. And just as a note, if you're making a movie like this, a documentary, if you're going to put something that they were in under their name, you have to address that in your documentary. Because why are people reading that if you're not going to talk about it? It's, it's kind of a bizarre choice, right? I mean, why are they here in Buckaroo Banzai? Like, everybody knows he was in Jurassic Park. You don't have to put that. He was in The Fly. Why didn't we talk about that? It's, it's a little – it is a little – I mean, again, there's some weird choices here. They did get some great names who I was happy to see. And then they also got some that I really could care less. Like, I I don't need to see Kevin Smith in anything again, ever. He loves himself, dude, so much. The way his farts smell must just be amazing. And Gary Busey. I don't know why anyone thought Gary Busey was worth interviewing. You answered your own question. (laughs) Put a camera in front of Gary Busey. It's funny, right? Like, no, it's not. It's not funny. I just kept staring at his eyes because they look like they're at different levels. But then I was like, is that just because his glasses are on crooked? Like, what's going on with his face these days? He has some crooked glasses. But his eyes are I was looking at his teeth. (laughs) He hypnotizes people with Mm -hmm. those teeth and then he bites their head off. (laughs) I think for me, the people that they got makes the absence of other people more obvious. Does that make sense? But I cannot complain about that, though, because I know that I always have people saying, well, why didn't you get this person? 
hey, you talked to this guy. Why didn't you talk to this guy? And sometimes just shit doesn't work out. So I was there going, well, where's John Carpenter? He would be great to talk to. But then I have to push that right out of my fucking head. <laughs> they got Jeff Goldblum, but where's Peter Weller? Yeah, what's he doing? Well, Weller will charge up the fucking ass for interviews these days. He's so. teaching courses on mythology is what he's doing, which is an actual – that's an actual thing. He has a PhD. Look it up. I'm not making this up. Wow. <laughs> Robocop has a PhD, folks. And there's Verhoeven writing his books about Jesus. So <laughs> yeah. they must have had some great conversations. I mean, to your point, Mike, you're completely right. Having done this podcast thing, you know, it is bizarre. Sometimes I'll reach out to someone that you got and I can't land them or vice versa. We've had that happen. I mean, when we did our Rocketeer episode, we got Billy Campbell, but you couldn't when you reached out to him. Like, I don't get it. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. Chris, the World Cup was on, and he was very busy watching the World Cup. Is that the real reason? Yeah, that's what he Amazing. told me. I love it. It's so that is that's the best reason to not spend an hour of your time talking about a movie that made you famous. I love it. It is to your point, Mike. I mean, it is you know schedules don't sync up, so that's not that is not their fault. I agree. I will say I'm looking forward to this director's next movie, which I don't know if you've looked it up on IMDb. Skin, A History of Nudity in the Movies. Hell yes. I mean, I'm there. They've got Mamie Van Doren lined up, uh, Eric Gavin. They've got, you know, and also Richard Roper. So. Is he naked? <laughs> Guess <laughs> you have to find Richard out. Richard Roper in all of this, right? <laughs> like, where's Maitland McDonough? Or, or, I know you don't like him, but uh, Mark Kermode. Like, where were those people? Oh, Mark Kermode's British. This has nothing to do with foreign films. I forgot. They have two foreign films, uh, Rocky Horror and Monty Python and the Holy Grail is not a cult film. I would probably have gone for Life of Brian if I were going to go for one. Or, life, but or uh, the history of, or the meaning of life. That's like the one Monty Python thing I never go back to. Or meaning of life? Yeah. Why? I'm just not a fan of that uh, one. I'm with, I'm with you. It's more vignette than film. It's like a, it's like an extended episode of the Flying Circus. For that, I'll go to, and now for something completely different. Just like this documentary is more vignette than film. Yeah, you know, a load of vignettes. Rod, you mentioned that that is another thing that I think is a failure is like you said, Rod, there's no underlying message. This is a documentary. You need to have something to say at the end. And what are you saying at the end other than cult movies are good? Here are ones you should watch. Did you need to spend five hours doing that? And here are other sequels. Like, and they're coming from a place of love. But for me... The things I wanted, it didn't deliver on. And like you, we've already essentially said at this point, they're not saying anything we haven't heard for the most part. This was not made for the three of us. This was, I don't know who this was made for. I'm guessing somebody, what, maybe in their 20s or maybe in their 70s? I'm not trying to, I'm not sure who this hits exactly. Netflix binge watchers. Yeah, or if it's just somebody that wants some comfort food. Because it was comforting to watch it. It just wasn't that informative. It wasn't like, oh, okay, well, that there was this phenomenon, and it was called the Midnight Movies, or here are what cult films are, and here's why we think that they become a cult. I mean, because there's always that weird X factor of why did this hit and this other one didn't, you know? Why... 
why was the Blair Witch big, but the last broadcast wasn't? You know, just two movies can come out at almost exactly the same time with exactly the same plot to them, ideas, and one will hit and the other one won't. Or one will take 20 years before it hits. You get a little of that depending upon who's talking. Like Bruce Campbell does a great job of explaining how the Evil Dead caught on. And like this review in LA Weekly sent us over the edge. Like the Stephen King's quote gave him some credibility. So the critics were like, oh, let's pay attention to this. And then LA Weekly like kicked it over into something entirely different. So it, it you get some of that, but just not enough of it. I also think like we've already kind of mentioned, by choosing the films that they chose, they did kind of pigeonhole themselves by not being able to get certain people. You know, you talk about a movie like Kingpin, you're not going to get anybody involved with that movie. Especially not Randy Quaid. Well, they got the director. Don't get me started on Peter Farrelly, for the love of God. Like, you couldn't get Woody Harrelson, you couldn't get Randy Quaid. That's not a cult movie. Maybe switch it for something else. They have other people that, like the critics, who aren't in these movies and have nothing to do with these movies, but they can speak intelligently about these movies. And that's why, like, the absence of, you know, films that uh, we think should be in there could have been in there because you aren't required to have someone involved with the production in them. It'd be ideal, but it's not required. But I just keep thinking of this from, and I don't know how they're going to make money off of this. I mean, through rentals, through streaming platforms, I suppose, but... It has to be streaming. Like, where else does it go at this point? Having Jeff Bridges' name or Jeff Goldblum or any of these folks, that having their names as they were in this. And even when it comes to that panel, saying... We've got Joe Dante, we've got John Waters, we've got Ileana Douglas, we've got Kevin Pollack, for God's sakes. That is something more than some of these, well, it's more than any of the critics. And and it's, you know, you, you want to have those names so that you can say, we have these people in this documentary. So if you don't have somebody to talk about a movie, sometimes it kind of is null and void. Known internet crazy person, Robert Davi. Which, by the way, as much as I just threw him under the bus, nice guy when I talk to him. <laughs> but known internet crazy person, Robert Davi. That name doesn't have a draw to it? Not as much as Amy Nicholson. That's not a knock on Amy Nicholson. That question, Mike, of how do you release this in a meaningful way and who's going to see this and how are they going to see it, I think is an interesting question when you approach making a documentary like this. Where is this going? Who's going to watch it? What are they going to get from this? What are we trying to give them? And I genuinely don't know if the people who made this film asked those questions before they made this, because it doesn't seem like a pure cinema consumer. It doesn't seem to me that they asked themselves those important and seemingly pertinent questions before they made this film, because I don't know... I don't have the answers to those questions, and if they did, I wasn't getting a semblance that they had those answers either. Well, that seems to be some of the toughest things these days as far as, where do I see this stuff? You know, there's so many times where it's like, I'll read about something, I'll be like, oh, well, that sounds really interesting. But then there's the big question of, where do I see it? And do I then have to start the hunt of, like, I'm going to check 
Hulu. I'm going to check Amazon. I'm going to check Netflix. I'm going to check here. I'm going to check that. And like all of these things that I have to check. And it's just like, why can't there be a way for me to just know where this thing is that I can grab it other than the Pirate Bay? They also shied away from something. And again, going back to what they shied away from, they also didn't talk about like cult films possibly made for children that have transcended the lines and become films that adults also consider cult films. It's like an oddly specific thing, but again, aren't cult films also oddly specific? Yeah, is that rhetorical? <laughs> I don't well, I don't know. Like I'm just I'm just thinking like you mention Eraserhead, but yet you don't mention some other films and it's just like I do think it would have been better served if they had approached it more of malleable where they're not like let's talk about these 30 movies but let's tell the story about cult movies and how films become cult movies and we'll use these as examples but uh, it's so fractured it 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 ultimately just yeah makes me go back to that question who is this for and i i don't know for sure but i i watched it all i was entertained for the most part but i have lots of problems with it too I want to thank my co-host for coming on and talking about Time Warp, the greatest cult films of all time, Chris and Rod. So, Chris, what is keeping you busy these days? Just uh, podcasting over at the Culture Cast, where we talk about movies once a week. And also a new podcast that we launched, Scary Stories We Tell podcast, where we talk about the unexplained, the intersection between the unexplained, true crime, and horror culture. You can find all of those if you check me out on Twitter, casualty underscore Chris. And Rod, what is going on with you, sir? I'm going to be listening to that podcast. That sounds interesting. I am reviewing on flickattack.com, which is a website I've had for about 10 years now. Uh, I also run bookgasm.com, which is book reviews. I have a chapter in a book coming out supposedly by the end of this year on uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. chapter I have in it, however, is on Tom Hansen's The Zodiac Killer from the seventies that that's something weird put out that's forthcoming. Um, other than that, I don't have anything else to announce. Well, thank you again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.